Well, good morning. Pretty good. I'll take it. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure to be back with you this morning as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. And if you were here last week, you'll no doubt agree that it was a great privilege to hear um, from our friend, our brother, Jay Hoffler, about the power of the gospel at work in his own life, and especially in his suffering. And I actually this morning want to pick up where Jay left off for a moment, because it's extremely pertinent and germane to the story that the Apostle Paul is telling, specifically through this part of the book of Romans. If you were here last week, you may remember that that Jay told a, um, and I'm not going to tell as well as he did, but I'm just going to refresh your memory, a very powerful story to end our time. And he began that story by uh, talking about the hole that he felt in life, walking around in his own heart. Jay would walk around and he felt like there was uh, a hole in his heart, not a literal hole, but a figurative hole. And he meant that in regards to the emptiness of, uh, of being loved of feeling like he was not loved well. Uh, Jay is not the first um, person to use that particular image for human experience. That image of walking around with, with an emptiness, walking around through life with a hole in your heart or a restlessness has been around for over 1,500 years. And we continue to use it across the generations because it has stood the test of time as an experience that we recognize, a generalized human experience that we recognize fits kind of who we are as men and women. The experience that we find to be true of needing to be loved, and not just the experience of needing to be loved, but the experience of the assurance of knowing that we actually are loved. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Jay talked specifically about his wife and his marriage. And the hole that he described was the deficit, he said, that drove his identity. So this is what stood out to me. I don't know if you remember this. He said that um, he became different versions of himself for his wife. He was the funny guy sometimes. He was the strong, silent guy. He was the career man. He was the servant at home. You name it, he became it. And yet to no avail. There was no difference in her reaction. Nothing that he could do to dress himself up, could fill the hole. And then, of course, you'll remember the details of the time when Jay spoke specifically, and I think probably most powerfully for me as as a man, about the details uh, of crawling into bed, when in his own words, and I would never characterize him like this, when he was his most hideous self. (laughs) And he crawls into bed, he gets under the covers, in his own words, just wretched looking. And his wife looks at him, she puts her magazine down, and she rolls over, and then she puts her cheek next to his and says to him, I love you so much. You are the bravest man I know. And if you were here last week, perhaps you remember that Jay ended that story with a question. He said this, is there anything better that you can hear from your wife? And no one needed to answer that question out loud, because whether you are married or not, you knew the answer. No. There is absolutely nothing better. There is nothing better to know than to know that we are loved. There is nothing better to know that we are loved, not for the men that we can become, 
when we adjust our personalities to fit the right circumstances or context at any given moment, but to be loved for the men that we actually are. Now listen, being men, everybody tells us, I think it's probably true, we are supposed to be traditionally less emotive, right? Uh, we are less open, that's what people tell us, we're less expressive, But those realities do not make the whole that Jay talked about any less real. It probably makes us ashamed that there's a hole there in the first place, certainly more reluctant to talk about it. But being loved as we are in our most hideous moments of anger, of failure, of shame, of weakness, you name it, that has the power to change a person according to the nature and the shape of the love as it is received. And that is the Apostle Paul's message to us this morning. Covenantal love. Covenantal love validated by suffering and by sacrifice. And the experience of that love worked out in your daily reality as a man has the power to change you. If the question that we've been sort of answering over and over sounds like the same question, it's because it is. And Paul returns to that question this morning. How is it, the question goes, how is it that the message of radical grace, the message that you are radically accepted by God, even at your most hideous moment, how is it that that message can actually yield or produce radical obedience in your life? It's the exact same question we looked at two weeks ago, only now Paul will use a different metaphor to get at the answer. Two weeks ago, the the metaphor was slavery. The idea was that you are owned by someone, and there's an obligation that comes with that ownership. This week, the metaphor is marriage. It is being owned by someone as well, and yet the metaphor turns as he turns the diamond of the gospel just a little bit, so that we can see the light hit it from a different angle to the power of love to induce obedience in our lives. We're about to read Romans 7, 1 through 6 together this morning, and I just want you to notice this as you read it. Notice the relational language that is present throughout the passage. To whom does Paul say you are joined this morning if you're a Christian? And what difference does that bond make in your life? What does Paul say? Let's read together now. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and hear from the apostle as he talks about the message of grace. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is Paul's message to us this morning. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word together as men. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you have gathered us once again. Um, Father, we're maybe hear things this morning that we've heard over and over and over again, and yet you and your word never tire of telling us these things, convinced that we don't deeply believe them, that we forget them all too easily throughout the week, certainly that, um, that we are reluctant to receive them as the operative principle in our lives. We pray this morning that you would move us forward along the journey of obedience that comes from loving you and being loved by you. Do this, we pray, because you are intent on seeing us produce fruit for you and not producing fruit that leads to death. Give us your grace to this end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, you wouldn't necessarily need them. You'll have the passage with you that we were studying. I just want to recall really quickly the question that Paul is answering for us, to put this in context, context if you're new for us, uh, with us this morning. The question is laid out very specifically in Romans 6.15, and I'm just going to read it from the text for a moment. Paul just says this. This is the objection that he is anticipating from the message of grace. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Okay, to put it another way, it might go like this. Since the gospel, the message of radical grace frees us from having our identities determined by God's good standards, His righteous standards, His measuring stick. Since the gospel frees us from having our identities determined by that, then are we not free to live in any way that we choose? And Paul's answer, if you've been with us over and over throughout Romans, is emphatically no. You are not free in Christ to live in any way that you choose. The no answer that you get this morning is fleshed out in our passage in this way. Now, listen, there are no imperatives in the passage this morning. If you came this morning to get beat up, come another week. There's there's nothing that Paul says that you have to do this morning. Only indicatives in the passage this morning, which means that Paul wants to sort of rub your face in the facts of what it means to be loved by Christ. Let me simply this morning set Paul's argument before you in five simple statements. Here they are, really quickly. The first part of Paul's argument is this. You were bound by the law, you were, as if you were married to it. You were bound by the law. There was a bondage there. You were bound by it as if you were married to the law. Number two, as in marriage, if a spouse dies, then the bond of marriage is dissolved. It's no longer valid. Number three, you died. In the body of Christ, you actually died. And therefore, your bond of marriage to the law has been dissolved. Number four, you were given a new life in the new life of Christ by virtue of his resurrection. And in that new life, there has been a new bond forged. It is a marital bond. It is a covenantal bond between you and Jesus Christ. The simple way to say it is, you are now married to him. You are married to Christ. And then number five, this is the last part of the paragraph, he just says this, this is a better deal for you. Like this is much, much better because this bond actually has the power 
to deal with your sin problem in a way that the other bond never had the power to do. Now, I want to talk about this just for a moment. You hear a lot about the law in Romans, and let me just be upfront about this. This was clearly written to first century Jews and not to predominantly Gentile white men in the park cities or somewhere close to it. Even the Gentiles to which this letter came um, were very uh, immersed in the Jewish tradition, had some experience in it, and probably uh, had been going to the Jewish synagogues for some time. And the dominant uh, identity marker of that experience was someone's relationship with Torah. Torah is the Mosaic law given by God to Moses. You can read about Torah in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. And Torah was not just a standard of doing and not doing. Torah, the law, was the most comprehensive identity marker of the Old Testament people of God. It is always, always in the background of how those people feel about themselves, how they know about themselves in the Old Testament. And frankly, where you sit this morning, you don't have that experience. Now, I don't know all of you that well, but I'm assuming that most of you um, are not Jewish, okay? Um, I don't think that most of you grew up uh, thinking about your social and your spiritual and your economic status even in terms of Torah. Your life has probably never felt truly bound by the Mosaic legislation in the same way that theirs did. However, there is no doubt that you have the experience of being bound by the law. There is no doubt that you have lived the experience of being bound by some ultimate identity marker, even if it's not the Mosaic legislation. There has been uh, some, uh, in your life, some functional standard of measurement that you have employed in order to know yourself, to know where you belong in this world, to know if you should be proud or ashamed in any given moment. And listen to me, here's how you know what the law is for you. What is it this morning? What has it been in your past that you look to, mo- to measure yourself most comprehensively? What is it that you look to in order to measure yourself as a man most comprehensively? What mirror in your life gives you that you think gives you the truest picture of who you are? It could be almost anything. For me, it has almost always been pleasing the people around me. At this point in my life, it's pleasing my wife and my kids. I measure myself all the time by criticism, by applause, by affirmation, by rejection, and that is a law. It's a law because it is a fundamental way to understand who I am. It could be your faithfulness in this church. It could be your financial security. It could be pleasing yourself, just listening to your own voice, that small, still voice that tells you what to do inside of you. It could be success at work. It could be just knowing, being known as a great guy. Whatever you use, whatever you employ to measure yourself most comprehensively is your law. And Paul is telling you this morning that in Christ, whatever that is for you, it no longer works. It doesn't work anymore. It is no longer, it no longer functions as a reliable identity marker for you. You can only know yourself, Paul says. You can only really know who you are in Christ by the measure of Jesus' love for you as your true spouse. That's the only way you can know yourself. Let me illustrate it for you this way. There was a small film that came out a few years ago. I don't, I don't know if I can recommend it. It's uh, uh, 
not PG-13, so I'm not sure you can do that in the pulpit, or PG, or G. It was called The Cooler, and the main character is um, a man named Bernie. And Bernie is a very sad man when you meet him. He is extremely lonely. Bernie has endured this uh, life of bad luck. And so his, his, uh, his luck is so bad that a casino hires him to be the cooler in the casino. And so what happens is um, when a craps table or a blackjack table, table gets hot, they send Bernie over, and Bernie cools the table off. His luck just rubs off on everyone else. But then something happens to Bernie. Bernie meets and falls in love with a, a woman named Natalie. And things are going very well for the first time in Bernie's life. The casino doesn't know what to do with him because his luck starts to change. And everything is going really well with Natalie until her past finally catches up with her. Bernie comes home one night to find that Natalie has been uh, physically assaulted, just beat up, by some thugs from her past. And in her struggle to sort of fight these guys off, uh, Natalie, things are broken in the apartment, and she has suffered these sort of severe cuts and bruises all over her face. And so without hesitation, Bernie helps Natalie to the car and drives her to a nearby hospital. So the next scene shows them in a car, and Natalie is obviously very distraught. She's been hurt. She doesn't know how she looks at this point, so she pulls down the mirror that's attached to the visor in the car to get a glimpse of herself, and she absolutely cringes when she sees how ugly she looks in the mirror, when she sees the blood, the distorted flesh, the potential scarring. And Bernie is driving, but he notices her reaction out of the corner of his eye, and he slows the car down, pulls it over to a stop. He grabs her arm, and he makes her look at him, and Natalie just keeps repeating, I'm too embarrassed, I'm too embarrassed, I'm too embarrassed, but Bernie is vigilant. And he finally quiets her down enough to say this, look at me, Natalie, look at me, look into my eyes. I want you to know something. My eyes are the only mirror you'll ever need. Now, what is Bernie telling Natalie in that moment? He's saying this. Do not draw your confidence. Do not draw your identity from what you see when you look in the mirror. Draw your confidence, your identity, from the pleasure you see in me when I look at you. Draw your confidence from me. Now, I've got to tell you, that seems incredibly sappy to tell a group of men on a Tuesday morning that, that early. But I love the picture. Because when Paul says that you are no longer married to a standard, whatever that is in your life, you are now married to a person, he is saying that you have to see yourself most comprehensively as a man through Jesus' own love for you. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is now the mirror that you need to understand yourself at the deepest level. And here's one of the reasons why, and he says it basically at the end of the, the second paragraph. Paul basically says this, your law, the law, whatever it is, whatever that is for you, your law cannot deal with sin. Your law cannot deal with sin. Not even God's law can do that. Why is that? Well, think about it. Your, your law will never suffer for you. Your law will never plead your case before God. Your law, whatever it is, will never fight for you against the power of temptation in your life. Paul is saying that your law, whatever it is, is a terrible, terrible spouse in every way. And so God has dissolved the marital bond, and he has given you a new spouse instead. And this spouse's posture to you in every way is love. Now, how in the world is that practical? 
How in the world, from Paul's own argument, does being married to Jesus Christ actually produce obedience in us? How does this make a difference in any way for our lives as men? Well, just for a moment, I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about the nature of love. Just think about what you know about love, because this, I think, is the key to understanding what Paul means when he says to serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul says that in the death and resurrection of Christ, you have been joined to Jesus Christ as your true spouse, as in a marriage. Now, whether you're married or not, you know this about marriage. Marriage is a comprehensive institution, right? It's comprehensive, just like slavery. What slavery and marriage have in common is this. In slavery and in marriage, no part of your life remains unchanged or unaffected by the one to whom you belong. Paul says now that you're married to Christ, now that you're actually married to Christ in love, every aspect of your life will be determined by him. Every aspect of your life will be directed by your love for him. Now, you know this by experience. Even if you're not married in this room this morning, you still know what it is to love someone or to love something else. And you know this, that if you love someone, if you love someone or you love something else, a pet, whatever it is for you, then two things are true at any given moment. The first is this. If you love someone or something, then your life becomes constrained by that thing. Right? Your life becomes constrained. You begin to make choices and decisions not on the basis of what you want, not on the basis of your own pleasures or desires, but on what's good for the other person. It's true in romance. It's true in friendship. It's true uh, in parenting, right? As money just flies out of your hand into thin air and you have no idea what happened to it, you just give it away. It's true if you own a dog and you get up in the morning when it's cold outside, you leave the comfort of your bed to walk your dog. Maybe out of love, maybe so that he doesn't use the bathroom in the house to clean it up later, but whatever you do, you recognize that having a pet, loving something, it takes away your freedom to some measure. It constrains you. There is always, always an obedience that is associated with love. There's a kind of submission. Love constrains us. And then number two, you know this, if you've ever loved something or someone, there will be joy in the constraint. There is joy in the constraint. Here's what I mean. Loving another person, choosing another person at expense to yourself will not merely be an obligation for you, but a joy, a desire. Listen, put it this way. You'll give part of yourself away. You'll give your stuff away. You'll give your time away. And you'll think at the end of that that you got the better end of the deal. That you actually won in the end. It was a sacrifice, but you would never call it that because you recognize that it was worth it. Constrained, constrained, joyful obedience is always, always a mark of love. Let me share one story with you this morning to, this, to that end. Some of you may know the name um, Robert McQuilkin. If you're in our Wednesday Bible study, you'll know this, because I shared this on Wednesday night. Robert McQuilkin was the former president of Columbia International University. It's a small uh, Christian Bible school in Columbia, South Carolina, and together he worked hard with his wife, Muriel, to grow the school. So Robert was a very popular president. He expanded the school's capacity, especially the graduate seminary. He was the charismatic sort of leader that everyone looked to and thought that the school could never do without. And so 10 years into Robert's term, 
his wife Muriel began to show signs of Alzheimer's disease. She began to forget things. And over the next uh, seven years, she deteriorated. Sometimes she would walk the mile or so to his office, and his secretary would have to tell her that he was in a meeting, and so she would walk home. And then two hours later, she would come back. And one day, she made that journey seven times, and when Robert got home that night, he helped get her shoes off, and her socks were bloody. Her feet were bloody from all the walking that day. So in February of 1990, Robert realized that Muriel needed him full-time. And that at the same time, the school needed a full-time president. So despite being a very popular president, and despite the fact that almost all of his friends urged him to put Muriel in full-time care, he resigned from his post to care for her full-time. I just want to read for you this morning what he said. This is what he said about the decision. He said, this is the easiest major decision I have ever made in my life. Muriel is almost always happy with me. And she is almost never happy when she's not with me. In fact, she seems trapped. She becomes fearful, sometimes almost terrified. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, I notice this about her. She is happy and she is content. And so I must be with her at all times. You see, I made a promise to her in sickness and in health till death do us part, but there's much more than that. She's a delight. As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is still the joy of my life. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love in her, the God that I long to love more fully, and it's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. It is a privilege. One interviewer asked Robert, could she express her love to you? And Robert replied, Valentine's Day had always been a very special day to us because we got engaged on Valentine's Day. On that day in 1995, it had been a year since Muriel had spoken. I was on an exercise bicycle at the foot of her bed while she was waking up. At that stage in her disease, she would often connect eyes with me and smile, and I would put a flag out in the front of the house to to let everyone know that it had been a good day, that she had smiled. I was talking to her that morning, and this is what I said. I said, honey, they say we're victims. We're not victims, are we? We love one another, right? And with that, her eyes popped open, and she said, love, love, love. Those were the first words she had spoken in a year. I jumped off the bicycle. I ran over, and I hugged her, and I said, we really do love one another, don't we? She couldn't find the word yes, so she said, I'm nice. And that was, he said, the last she ever spoke before she died eight years later in 2003. Now there are two things that stand out to me about that story. One is this, Robert constrained himself out of love for Muriel. Did you get that? Loving her was not free. It cost him something. His career, his hobbies, his personal goals, they all became subordinate to her. His life was constrained. It was directed by his love for Muriel. And then number two, there's this statement. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. It is a privilege. Do you notice what's missing from his words this morning? There is no trace of reluctance. There's no second guessing. There's no resentment. To him, Muriel is his joy. He does not consider his care for her a burden, an obligation, but a delight. Now listen to me. You do not have to be a Christian this morning (laughs) to hear a story like that and to agree and to understand something in it of the character of love. 
love is always marked by joyful constraint. And when Paul says this morning that you, if you're in Christ, are joined to Jesus Christ as in a marriage, he assumes something very important. He assumes that you are actually in love with him. And that you will joyfully give over your entire life to be constrained out of that love in obedience to him. Now here's the deal. That's a lofty thought, isn't it? And I'll be honest, the scriptures talk about this all the time. But there is always for me a sort of existential question that I've often wrestled with in moments like these. When Paul or any other scripture writer says or points to our love for God as the basis of our obedience to him. And here's the question. It goes something like this. What if obedience doesn't feel like that at all? <laughs> right? What if where you sit this morning, you, in all your honesty, you simply don't feel that sort of love towards Jesus as your true spouse? What if that sort of love is not a, a comprehensive, operative principle in your life? Here's what I think. And this is where I think especially the gospel tends to wield its power. I think where you sit this morning, as a human being, it is almost impossible to change what you love by the power of your will. I think it's almost, if it's not impossible, it is, uh, it is, it is borderline impossible. By virtue of your own will to conjure deep affection for someone or something else. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me just give you a quick silly example. Any A&M fans this morning here? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. There's no shame of being an A&M fan. Okay, raise your hand high. Okay, good. Here's what I want you to do. I've got, I have a task for you this week. I want you to love the University of Texas. Wait, hold on. Not just to love them, in place of the Aggies. I want you to drop your allegiance to A&M, and I want you to love Texas. Could you do it? I don't think you can. I don't think you can do it with any deep sincerity. Not if you're a true fan. You might be able to fake it for the week, but it wouldn't be real. You, I, look, you cannot, I don't think, will deep affection into existence. It is almost impossible to change what you love. But here's the reality of the gospel. It is possible. It happens all the time. To be changed by what loves you. And how that love begins to get played out in your life. Listen, it is exactly what Jay himself talked about last week, knowing that you are loved by Christ. Regardless of where your affections stand this morning for him, in your most hideous moments of anger, failure, shame, weakness, you name it, that has the power to change a person according to the shape and the nature of the love that's received. Men, do you know how much Jesus loves you this morning? Do you know how much he loves you? Not, the, like, not just the world, <laughs> not humanity and even in any vague way, but you personally. Do you know that he went to hell and back for you? Not for what you could be, not for what you think he might wish you would prove to be, but for you as you sit this morning. Do you know that his life, his very life as God, of, very God of light of true light, was constrained for you? And men, do you know that you can comb through the pages of the New Testament and though you find in Jesus Christ suffering and sacrifice, you will never find one trace of resentment, one trace of reluctance, no second guessing for you. You are his joy, not a duty to him, but a delight. 
And that's what Paul means when he says that you belong to him. He means that you have been, you've been loved well by him. And that his love for you will win in the end. And it will bear the fruit of God that he has won for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for Paul's words. Um, Lord, we do pray that the message of radical grace, the message that we are accepted and loved by you in Jesus Christ, that those aren't just words, those were fleshed out in our own humanity, in his own death and resurrection. They are fleshed out every day as he sits at the right hand of your throne and cares for us, even as he cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and the intricacies of our lives. We pray, Father, that we would come to know more of that love and that you would change us by it, that you would cause that love to be an operative principle in our own life and that you would cause, as a result, that, to, that we would be, as your sons, bearers of fruit for you. Um, Father, help us as men, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. For, you should all have questions this week on your sheet, and you're dismissed.